0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Sunday school hour here at Faith Baptist Church. As the kids are being dismissed to their Sunday school class, let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter 9. Chapter 9? Yep. You see, because we did chapter 8 last time. We are not. In chapter 8, we talked about a Shunammite woman, uh, her departure from the land of Israel during the years of famine, her return and restoration of her land. We talked about Hazael, and Elisha's prediction or uh, or rather prophecy about how horrible a leader he's going to be in Syria and then how he murdered his uh, king with a wet cloth over his face while he was sleeping. So if you uh, listened to the podcast this past week, you maybe saw the thumbnail. What was that? She's checking the stream. We're good. Okay. I thought I heard somebody talking somewhere. It was me. Yeah. Wow. I rock. <laughs> yeah. So if you, anyway, if you were watching the, I'm just trying to remember where I was. If you're watching the, listening to the podcast this week, you might have seen the thumbnail for the podcast, and it was me with a damp cloth over my face. So. It's a little ominous looking, mm-hmm. especially since I kind of dulled out the colors and gave it the sort of dark around the edges sort of look. So It's really creepy looking. It's awesome. 2 Kings chapter 9 this morning, the title of our lesson is The Royal Hand of Divine Justice. The Royal Hand of Divine Justice... And our first point this morning is the call to lead. It says in verse 1, And Elisha the prophet, just in case you thought it was any other Elisha, called one of the children of the prophets and said unto him, Gird thy loins, take this box of oil in thine hand, and go to Ramoth-Gilead. And when thou cometh thither, look out there, Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and make him arise up from among his brethren and carry him to an inner chamber then take a then take the box of oil and pour it on his head and say thus saith the lord i have anointed thee king over israel then open the door and flee and tarry not so the young man even the young man the prophet so the young man even the young man the prophet Went to Ramoth Gilead, and when he came, behold, the captain of the host were sitting. And he said, "I have an errand to thee, O captain." And Jehu said unto which of all of us? And he said to thee, O captain. So he walks into a room full of captains and says, "I have a message for the captain." And they're like, "You're got to be more specific." There's a lot of captains. And he arose and went, verse six, into the house. And he poured the oil on his head, and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed thee king over Israel, over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. And thou shalt smite the house of Ahab thy master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, And I will cut off from Ahab him that pisseth against the wall and him that is shut up and left in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the portion of Jezreel. There shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door and fled. Then Jehu came forth, to the servants of his lord and said one and one said unto him is all well wherefore came this mad fellow to thee and he said unto them ye know the man and his communication evidently they had been listening at the keyhole and they said it is false tell us now and they said thus and thus spake he to me saying thus saith the lord i have anointed thee king of Over Israel. Then they hasted and took every man his garment and put it under him on the top of the stairs and blew with trumpets, saying, Jehu is king! And so we've seen quite a political um, shift happen just now. Because it all starts here with the prophet. You remember with David. Before he was anointed king, before he gained a following, before Saul started pursuing him, before David and Goliath, Samuel came to his house and anointed him to be king over Israel. And that's where it all really started. Before Saul was stood up before all the people, before he went into battle, before he was leading soldiers as a king, Samuel came to him and anointed him to be king over Israel. Before he did it publicly, he did it privately, if you'll remember. They were eating, and everybody else had sort of gone on, and he asked Saul to sort of hang out with him by themselves. And as he did, he took out the anointing oil, and he anointed uh, Saul to be king over Israel. So it all starts there first with God's blessing in that anointing, which we see in verse 6. He's anointed by God uh, in a literal anointing this anointing holds spiritual significance because by it Jehu was set apart for service somebody at the door if you don't get that we can't be friends we just can't be if you don't know that that's the Jetson's doorbell ring oh Mm. The anointing holds spiritual significance because by it, Jehu was set apart for service as God's earthly representative on the throne of Israel. As you remember, we talked about royal bloodlines before, right? England has a royal bloodline. There are so many people in line for the throne, you know? Uh, other places uh, in Africa, the different tribes have their kings over their tribes, you know. But there's only ever been one divine royal bloodline. Only one, you might even say true, royal bloodline. And that is the line of David. Because it leads to Christ, and its will it will someday lead to Christ sitting upon that throne in Jerusalem. So that's the only true divine bloodline, and anybody who sat upon it became, once they were anointed by God, and they sat upon that throne as called by God, they were doing so as God's earthly representative to the throne of Israel. Now, we know that Jehu was not a descendant to David. We know that because he's the king over Israel, not the king over Judah. Remember, the land's been divided. And so the king of Judah is the royal bloodline, except he is not walking in the ways of his father David. He doesn't live according to the ways of the Lord. But God has called Jehu, a complete stranger to the bloodline, to sit upon the throne of Israel and become his royal hand of divine justice. But Jehu, even though he's not part of the Davidic bloodline, is still been called by God to be a king. You'd say, how could God call on somebody who's not of the royal divine bloodline to be king? In the same way that he's called you and I to do his work instead of Israel. Because Israel wasn't doing God's will. They rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They decided they wanted a different one. They wanted to shop around for the right kind of Messiah. That's not how it works. It's like when Joshua stood before the Lord and didn't realize it. And he said, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the Lord said, no. You see, God's not for us or for them. We're for God or they're for God. It's not the other way around. We talk as though we expect God to move at our will at our prayers like it's waving a magic wand except the matter of the fact is we've got a cart before the horse we do God's will he doesn't do ours and we're blessed or cursed by what he deems uh, fit for us it's not the other way around and here the Davidic bloodline has gotten out of God's will They're wanting their gods to work on their behalf. So they go out and shop for the right kind of God, just like Israel had rejected Jesus because he wasn't their kind of Messiah. They've rejected uh, Jesus, and so the Gentiles have been given the honorable work of spreading the gospel around the world. Giving the gospel to the entire world, teaching and preaching the word of God, baptizing, that's what we should be busy about. And that's what we are busy about. The Bible says in Second uh, Corinthians chapter one and verse twenty-one. Now he which uh, establisheth us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God. So we have been anointed to do God's work as well. We are like Jehu or like Saul or like David. We have been anointed as God's earthly representative here on earth. We might not do it from a throne. We might do it from behind a desk. We might do it from behind a counter. We might do it in front of a a cashier's table. We might do it while sweeping floors. We might do it while fixing cars. Whatever it is that we do, we might do it while feeding the children. We might do it while doing the laundry while mowing the yard. But whatever it is that we do, we are God's earthly representatives here on earth, and we have been anointed spiritually, not literally, but we have been anointed to do his will. And then we see in verse 7 that he's called to avenge the blood of prophets by Ahab, And all servants by Jezebel. Did you notice that? Avenging the blood of the prophets is a reference to 1 Kings chapter 18. Verse 4 says, For it was so when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah took an hundred prophets and hid them by fifty in a cave, and fed them with bread and water. This is not obadiah the prophet from the book of obadiah this was a servant in the house of ahab whose name was obadiah and if you remember this lesson he went and hid a hundred prophets outside of the kingdom in a cave and brought them food so they would survive and those were the only prophets of god left and alive in the entire kingdom the rest of them the bible says jezebel cut off So then you might ask, if Jezebel's the one that cut him off, how is it that Ahab's getting blamed for it here in 2 Kings 9? Well, you remember the story of uh, Naboth's vineyard. If you don't remember the story, the way it goes is Ahab decided he wanted this vineyard. And he went out and he offered to pay for the vineyard because he wanted it. Naboth said, I can't sell you this, your majesty, because... This is my family's livelihood. If I were to sell it, we wouldn't have anything to live or to eat. I apologize, but I just cannot sell you this. So Ahab goes home angry and moping and sad and upset. Jezebel finds out about it, and she sets him up to uh, sit at a banquet. And while they're there, she has certain nobles accuse him of blasphemy against the king and against God, which he's not guilty of. And they go out and they stone him and he dies. So then Ahab takes his vineyard because Naboth's no longer alive to contest it. But how Jezebel did that was she wrote to the nobles in Ahab's name. Now there's no way for her to do that without Ahab knowing about it and being okay with it. She had to have access to his ledger. She had to write his name and then him not hear about it later in order for that to be the case. And that cannot be the case. She would have had to have had access because he gave her access in the first place. So Jezebel, yes, was the one that cut off the prophets, but she most likely, just like with Naboth, did so by using his name using his resources to murder all the prophets of the Lord. And now the bill comes due. You know, when people live in such evil times as to have an entire generation of prophets murdered senselessly where there's only so many left in the whole country, people ask, how can God allow such evil to exist. But the bill comes due. And it comes due here in 2 Kings 9. It may not happen in the timing that we want it to happen, but it does happen. God is a God of justice, and he will have his will be done, but in his own good time. The sins of Ahab... Could not be punished, however, upon Ahab, because he was already dead. So justice demands that his remaining household take his punishment. And you might say, that doesn't sound fair. It's not his kids' fault that they were born to an evil father. It's not his grandkids' fault. They didn't do anything wrong. And that's true. But the same thing's true about us today. How many people continue to pay for the sins of the Father under the third and the fourth generation? How many times a parent or even a grandparent did something terrible in their life or chose to be a terrible person, and that terrible thing they did, it becomes contagious. It like seeps into the DNA. They take it upon themselves. Or, or perhaps a father or grandfather was abusive, And it affects the child and the grandchild for the rest of their lives. This is a message and it's a warning that we understand that our sins don't affect only us. And far too often our families pay the price for our selfishness. We choose to do what we want to do because we deserve it. We've been through enough. We're just going to do something that makes me feel good. I don't care if it's wrong. But oftentimes, it's not you that ends up paying the price. Oftentimes, our families pay a far greater price than we do. Here, Ahab's family is paying the price for his lifelong idolatry and sinfulness and selfishness. And then he goes on to talk about avenging the blood of all at the hand of Jezebel. Jezebel did more evil as a queen than any of the kings of Israel. She was one of the single most evil royal people to have ever lived in all of Israel. All the death, the destruction... The pure chaos that went on for for centuries, for decades in Israel. That this one woman created was brought forth as a product of her selfishness. She had people killed. We talked about Naboth. We talked about the prophets. Anybody who stood against her or her husband, she used her wiles to take the power she needed to make sure people died. Things were burned down. Chaos ensued throughout all of Israel as they chased Elijah to kill him for what he did. To try to hunt him down when he slew all those prophets of Baal. The chaos that took place throughout this land for years because of Jezebel. And her selfishness how much chaos how much destruction do we cause with our own selfishness you might say i don't cause any chaos i don't cause any destruction but sometimes destruction isn't something you can see with your eyes sometimes destruction doesn't always take place in the form of a building being destroyed sometimes it's not always in the form of a person being killed sometimes you can really destroy somebody spiritually. You can destroy people emotionally. You can cause permanent damage to people and you'd never be able to see it. Because we as people naturally like to pretend like we're fine. I'm fine, it's fine, nothing bothers me. I'm fine, you can't get to me because I'm fine. But inside we're dying. Be cautious how you behave, the words you use. The attitude we have toward people, the tongue is an unruly poison, full of, or unruly evil, full of deadly poison. And when you spew that poison, there is no antidote. Be cautious of the selfish things we choose to do in a moment of pure anger. We see in verse nine that he's called to make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam. Does anybody remember the story of Jeroboam? A little bit. Let me refresh your memory. 1 Kings chapter 21 verse 25 says, uh, just to, to give you some context about Ahab, that there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. There was never, the Bible says here, there was never anybody as evil as Ahab in all of Israel's history. The things that Ahab did, they make Saul look like a perfect saint. Well, we thought Saul was bad, didn't we? Right through all that he did, what did Saul do? He slaughtered an entire city of priests. Right, that's pretty bad. Ahab murdered all the prophets. All the prophets he could find. Boy, he, he took that cake, didn't he? Never a king is evil as Ahab. But the thing about Saul was, he might have done some pretty terrible things, but he loved Israel and he cared for his people. That can't be said of Ahab. The only person that Ahab loved was Ahab. And he says here that Jehu is called to make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam. And to refresh you about Jeroboam, 1 Kings 14, verse 7 says, Go tell Jeroboam, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, For as much as I exalted thee from among the people, and made thee prince over my people Israel, and rent the kingdom away from the house of David, and gave it to thee, and yet thou hast not been as my servant David, who kept my commandments, and who followed me with all his heart, to do that only which was right in mine eyes, but hast done evil above all that were before thee, for thou hast gone and made thee other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger and hast cast me behind thy back. Therefore I will bring evil upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam him that pisseth against the wall and him that is shut up and left in Israel and will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam as a man taketh away dung till it be all good. Him that dieth of Jeroboam in the city shall the dogs eat. And him that dieth in the field shall the fowls of the air eat. For the Lord hath spoken it. The way it worked in Israel, culturally in this day and time, was that when a man's reputation was destroyed, they would destroy his whole house. Nobody of his name left alive. Then they would go to his house they would set it on fire, and they would burn it to the ground. Then where that house once stood, they would make it a, what's called a dung heap. And they would take all the dung from the animals in the area, and they would turn that place where their house once stood as a giant manure pile. And it became a dung heap, and that's where you go to uh, sort of get like fertilizer to fertilize the plants and make things grow better. That's what happened to men like Jeroboam. That's what God is saying will happen to the house of Ahab. Because evil must be snuffed out. And God will make sure of that. Why? Because he's a God of justice. He's a just God. And he works his own good will in his own good time. But notice after this uh, prophecy... You know, uh, this prophet sent by Elisha gives the proclamation. He runs out, and Jehu tells all of his friends what happens. What did they do? In verse 13. Verse 13. They took off their garments and they laid them before him. The garment referred to here most likely refers to what is known as the meyil or the outer garment. It was worn by the poor and the rich alike and you see the way it worked in Israel was you had an inner garment that was basically like a long, tight-fitting robe and it came from the top all the way down below the knee. And you would sometimes tie that off with a sash around the waist. Then you had an outer garment. Some people wore the sash around the outer garment to tie them both up. But usually that belt or girdle as it was called is used to tie the the robe up and out of the way while you were working during the day because anybody who's worn a robe or sort of a long tight-fitting dress knows it's not super easy to walk around in that. So you tie it up with the girdle to get it out of the way, and then you wear the outer robe. The rich decorated their mayil uh, with metal ornaments, precious stones, and embroidery. And it was very different than the outer garment of the poor. And it was outside of their inner garment, which was tied up, like I said, with the girdle, or as we would call it, a belt. But in this particular story, it didn't matter whether they were rich, whether they were poor, whether they were young, whether they were old. They all were united under their king. The mails that were embroidered Covered with beautiful jewelry, the ones that were plain, made out of hard, scratchy materials. Didn't matter which kind it was, they were all taken off and laid under the king. They were united by their king. And here, on the 4th of July, I would like to declare, since I probably won't do it for the rest of the day, because I don't do political statements typically. But it's no surprise to anybody that, I'm not gonna break any news here in telling you that America is divided today in just about every way possible. Rich people are supposed to be Republican and poor people are supposed to be Democrats. The baby boomers can't understand these lazy millennials and these millennials can't understand these angry baby boomers. But Christians have both a necessity and a calling to set aside these things and unite under our King, King Jesus. And then it won't be a mayel, it won't be an outer garment, but the book of Revelation teaches us that there will come a day where every person, man or woman, black or white, young or old, rich or poor, will have crowns that we will take off and we will cast at the feet of our King. Jesus, And in that day, it won't matter who was president in the rapture, right? It won't matter what political turmoil was taking place when those clouds parted like a scroll. A portal out of heaven opens up, and our Lord descends, a trumpet calls. The voice of the Lord booms throughout the entire planet, and in an instant... And the Bible says the twinkling of an eye. We're in paradise forever. And it won't matter anymore the things that divided us on the earth. And if they won't matter then, why do they matter now? If they don't matter in eternity, they don't matter today. We should be united. We just finished our First Corinthians series on Wednesday nights. I can tell you the theme of the book of 1 Corinthians is unity. Because that church was very divided. I am of Paul. I am of Cephas. I am of Apollos. I am of Christ, the super spiritual. I am of Christ. Paul says, is Christ divided? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? See, we're all united by Jesus. Jesus. We may all think differently. We may all believe differently. But at the end of the day, if you're a born-again child of God, you were put under those waters in the name of Jesus that unites us. Amen. United under our king. That brings us to our second point this morning. I don't have my phone. What's the time? Thirty. Okay, we got time the destruction of the kings in verse 14, our story really begins to pick up the pace here. This is what you might call the fun part of the story. In verse 14, it says, So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram had kept Ramoth-Gilead, he and all Israel, because Hazael, king of Syria. Remember Hazael mm-hmm. from last week's lesson? Well, he's begun to trouble Israel like Elisha said he would. And so... Excuse me. So Joram, who is the current king of Israel, he's trying to hold a particular fort that Haziel is trying to take. Verse 15 says, But King Joram was returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds which the Syrians had given him when he fought with Haziel, king of Syria. And Jehu said, If it be your minds, then let... None go forth nor escape out of the city to go to tell it in Jezreel. So Jehu rode in a chariot and went to Jezreel. For Joram lay there, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, was come down to see Joram. Now Ahaziah is the anointed, not anointed, but he is the king that is of the direct bloodline to David. This is the king of Judah. Verse 17 says, And there stood a watchman on the tower in Jezreel, and he spied the company of Jehu as he came, and said, I see a company. And Joram said, Take thee in horsemen and send to meet them, and let him say, Is it peace? So there went on horseback to meet him, and said, Thus saith the king, Is it peace? And Jehu said, What hast thou to do with peace? Turn thee behind me. And the watchman told, saying, The messenger came to him, But he cometh not again. Then he sent out a second on horseback, which came to them and said, Thus saith the king, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What hast thou to do with peace? Turn thee behind me. And the watchman told, saying, He came even unto them, and cometh not again. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he driveth furiously. And Joram said, Make ready. And his chariot was made ready, and Joram king of Israel, and Ahaziah king of Judah, went out, each in his chariot. And they went out against Jehu, and met him in the portion of Naboth, the Jezreelite. And it came to pass, when Joram saw Jehu, that he said, Is it peace, Jehu? And he answered, What peace? So long as the whoredoms of thy mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many. And Joram turned his hands, and fled And said to Ahaziah, There is treachery, O Ahaziah! And Jehu drew a bow with his full strength, and smote Jehoram between his arms. And the arrow went out at his heart, and he sunk down in his chariot. Then said Jehu to Bidkar, his captain, Take up and cast him in the portion of the field of Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember how that when I and thou rode together after Ahab his father, the Lord laid this burden upon him. Surely I have seen yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, saith the Lord. And I will requite thee in this plat, saith the Lord. Now therefore take and cast him in the plat of ground according to the word of the Lord. But when Ahaziah... The king of Judah saw this he fled by way of the garden house and Jehu followed after him and said smite him also in the chariot and they did so and they uh, did so and they going up to Ger which is by Ilbium and he fled to Megiddo and died there that is a very important place Megiddo is the single most important battlefield the history of the planet will ever know. It is the final war. It will be the the battleground for the final war of planet Earth. It'll be God. It'll be the Lord Jesus Christ against the entire forces of Earth at the valley of Megiddo. On that plain will be the battle of Armageddon. Verse 28 says, And his servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem, and buried him in his sepulcher with his fathers in the city of David. And in the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, began Ahaziah to reign over Judah. So we see the destruction of the kings. Secondly, this morning, We see verse 16 tells us that Jehu rode to Joram while Joram was still recovering. Jehu did not wait for Joram to recover before charging on him, right? He was still recovering from his wounds from one battle before he came in on him on the other. They say that what all's fair in love and war, right? Now what they say? That's exactly how our spiritual enemies fight against us as well. They're not going to hold back on you because you're having a bad day. They're not going to make your life easier. They're not going to play fair. They're not going to play by the rules. They're going to come after you with everything they can. They're going to break you. They're going to do everything they can to destroy you. They want to leave nothing left. The Bible refers to the devil as a roaring lion. I love watching nature documentaries, and we just got Discovery Plus and old uh, Crocodile Hunter episodes are on there. I've been watching a bunch of those, and one of the first episodes they have on there is where he's in Africa, right? And he does all of these amazing things. He finds one of the most deadly snakes in all of Africa, and he's like poking it with a stick, right? He's like picking it up by the tail, swinging it around and stuff. He finds a white rhino, and he's like, let's see how absolutely close I can get to this rhino before it just charges me. And it starts pawing the ground and and moving its head like this. He's like, okay, I think that's as far as I can get. But let's stand here for a second and see. Guy's crazy. But you know what happened? He came across a lion. And it was a wounded lion. And he could tell by its mane, been kind of torn up, this lion knew how to fight. And the second he saw the lion, he said, I'm not going anywhere near that lion. I'm not messing with it. I'm not playing with it. I'm As soon as it gets into that bush, you can't see me anymore. I'm running for my life as fast as I can. Steve Irwin. A man who I thought had no fear. He might not have fear, but he, he's not stupid either. You know why? Because that lion's a man-eater. And he saw the carcass of some of its, uh, its prey before. There was just bones left, and not even all of those. There was nothing left on the ground, because when a lion devours its prey, it consumes everything. Just everything. It leaves nothing behind. No blood, no nothing. The devil is a roaring lion. He leaves nothing behind of you when he devours you. He destroys you completely. He completely consumes you. And he's nothing to trifle with. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Don't try to take him head on. David tried that and lost. Adam tried that and lost. Better men than you have tried and failed to take on the devil. The only one that's ever come out clean is Jesus, Matthew chapter 4. We're no Jesus. We're not going to take him head-on, but we can resist him. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. That's how our spiritual enemies attack us. They're not going to wait for you to catch your breath or recover before they attack. They come at you with everything. And it's easy to have faith when things are going well, but when everything starts to fall apart literally falling apart at the seams that's when we need our faith the most we were cleaning up last night and I found one of those old blankets that we bought for the church that we were using and I noticed there's a string hanging off what do you do when you see a string hanging off you start pulling on it and literally the threading on the end of it just started unraveling off of it completely I was trying to find you know scissors or something to cut it off with I couldn't find anything so I got a lighter and I burned it off which works and it makes a nice little end instead of it being frayed but sometimes life is like that there's one little string right and you pull on it a little bit and before you know it the whole thing's come completely unraveled you know i'm just gonna come out here and i'm just gonna get the oil changed oh all the oil's changed your brakes are going out you got two tires missing the hood's gone your windshield needs to be replaced and i'm pretty sure there's a crack on the block and you're like i just wanted an oil change when did all of this go how did the heat what You know, you go in to check on something at work, and oh, by the way, you're fired. What? what? Yeah, we're downsizing, you know. Things aren't too good after the pandemic and everything. (laughs) don't feel like Be careful what you wish for. But uh, it didn't take any time at all for that little thread to start having, having the whole thing fall apart at the seams. And that's when we need our faith the most. But then his answers, as they're coming up to him, he's riding forward and they send a horseman to him and they say, is it peace, Jehu? And his answer is so uh, uh, interesting to me. He says, what peace? What peace are you talking about? Israel doesn't have any peace. We haven't had peace in generations. What peace? So long as Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many. The whoredoms of Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many. There in verse 22. Israel could never have peace so long as the sins of Jezebel remained in their land. So too does the Christian lose the peace of God so long as known sin remains in their life. Philippians 4.9 says, Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. And then they attack the king. The king is killed, and he says, cast him in the portion of the field of Naboth. Joram, the son of Ahab, the son of both Ahab and Jezebel, by the way, is buried in the field of Naboth, the man they murdered so that they could steal his land. They say that justice... Is balance right you look at the uh, the symbol for the American justice system right it's the it's the uh, the Greek judge right she's blinded what's she holding in her hand Scales. a scale because justice is balance and while God is merciful and loving he's also righteous and just God is a God of justice as much as he is mercy and love. And we too would be paying for the destruction that our sins caused were it not for the balancing of the scales of justice that Jesus performed on the cross. And then we see thirdly and finally this morning, the bloody end of Jezebel. What time we got? 45. Okay, I'm going to read this through real quick because you've got to hear this. It's just incredible. It's going to ruin your breakfast. It's amazing. Verse 30. And when Jehu was come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And she painted her face, makeup, and tired her head and looked out at a window. And as Jehu entered in at the gate, she said, Had Zemri peace who slew his master? And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who's on my side? And there looked out of him two or three eunuchs. And he said, Throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses. And they trode her underfoot. And well, it gets worse, don't worry. And when he was come in, he did eat and drink and said, Go see now this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. And they went to bury her, but they found none more than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Not even with the fingers. Wherefore they came again and told him, and he said, This is the word of the Lord, which spake by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, In the portion of Jezreel shall dogs eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the carcass of Jezebel shall be as dung upon the face of the field of the portion of Jezreel, so that they shall not say, This is Jezebel. Real quick, uh, had Zimri peace who slew his master. If you want to write down this passage, 1 Kings 16, 1 Kings 16, verses 8 through 18. That is the story she's referring to uh, where Zimri slew uh, Jeroboam and his end, which was not well. Uh, Jezebel's trying to scare anyone she can uh, into thinking that Jehu is going to end up like Zimri. Uh, Fear tactics have become more popular in recent years, just like with Jezebel. Jezebel. Uh, Whether we're talking about news media, whether we're talking about businesses, or whether we're talking about churches. Fear tactics have become quite popular, and uh, it's something that Christians shouldn't be affected by. Because God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of love and of peace and of a sound mind. Then he says, verse 32, who is on my side? And this is the portion I want to end on this morning. Who is on my side, he asks. The king of Israel the anointed king of Israel, mind you, riding in to his kingdom, asking his people in his palace, who's on my side? Here we sit in the house of God, right? That's what a church is, right? It's the house of God. And if the Lord rode in here this morning and he asks the question, who is on my side? It should be the entire congregation, right? And I'm sure here it is. I know all of you very well. I'm sure you're all on the Lord's side. But perhaps there's some on the other side of that camera who aren't. Perhaps there's somebody watching today or even in the future who isn't. And here the Lord stands and he asks, who is on my side? We remember the story in Exodus 32. In Exodus 32 uh, is the story where they've made the golden calf, they're dancing around naked, there's a giant orgy, it's a lot of sin. Right? Moses comes down. He's so appalled by all the sin and disgusting nature of Israel that he breaks the Ten Commandments. He goes to the golden calf. He melts it down. He puts it in the drinking water, and he makes them drink the golden calf. Then after that, he comes to Aaron, and it's my favorite story ever, where Aaron's like, look, 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 I didn't do this. I just threw gold in there, and I popped that calf. Man, it was crazy. You wouldn't believe it. He's like, you're right, I don't believe it. <laughs> but then after that, Moses goes, And he takes all the priests, the sons of Levi, right? and he takes them outside of the camp. And he says, Whoso is on the Lord's side, let him come unto me. And those that were still on the Lord's side came unto them, and he said, All right, every man draw his sword, and everybody who did not come with us outside of the camp, they die. And they went through and they killed everybody who is not on the Lord's side. That is not what God asks us to do. Let me make that very clear right away. God is not condoning violence in this New Testament age. Right? This is the age of grace. But there is coming a day will God, where God will take matters into his own hands. There will come a reckoning. There will come a, a day where the Lord will read the names of those who have accepted him as their personal Savior and have been pardoned. And the scales of justice have been balanced by the shed blood of Jesus Christ in their name. And on that day... He will judge those who are found guilty because they do not have the forgiving blood of Christ upon their name and a reckoning is coming and I pray that nobody hearing this today or any other day will be found guilty of their sins on that day but innocent through the shed blood of Jesus Christ alright that is all the time and more that we have this morning uh, we will be back at what time is it now? we'll be back at 5 after